uh, from Matthew 24, 1 through 14. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can grab a seat. This is uh, strangely timed for an end times message. We've been in Matthew for almost two years, and we've got two more weeks left before we wrap up this series. And I thought it would be fitting uh, to look at what Jesus has to say about the end times as we draw near to the end of our time in Matthew together. And I actually think that this is one of the more unsettling passages about the end times, not because there's like a mark of the beast or an antichrist or a rapture or floods or anything that we're seeing now. The scary thing about what Jesus says here is not so much about what's happening outside with outside forces, but what's happening inside of our own hearts. When we think about the end times, we might think about, you know, situations and, and, and the ball's just kind of rolling and it's like, well, it's already set in motion and there's not a lot we can do and you just buckle up, buttercup, we're, we're along for the ride and this thing's going down. But this passage, it points out that there are going to be some things on the outside that we don't have control of, namely the people that you're sitting next to. But Matthew 23, 13 says, the love of many will grow cold. And this points to us that we actually, we actually have something to say about the inside of our own hearts, the own, inside of our own lives in preparing ourselves for the end of all things. This is what I think the message this morning is. Keep your heart soft to God and keep following Jesus. I think this is what Jesus is spurring his disciples on with, and I believe it's what he's saying to us this morning. 
Frederick Dale Bruner says this in his commentary on this section of Matthew. Jesus' sermon does not intend to create great apocalyptic seers, but create spiritual long-distance runners. It does not so much give disciples supernatural knowledge of coming events as it supplies disciples with supernatural endurance for any coming events. This is the call. Keep your heart filled with love for God and love for other people. Some of us are witnessing this right now, actually. Some of the closest people to us, you can see their hearts are seizing up. They're actually turning their face from God. They're choosing to dismantle and then walk away. They're choosing to let their hearts grow hard. They're choosing to let their minds go dim. You're witnessing it firsthand, and it's heartbreaking. Some of you are experiencing this, little flickers of this in your own heart, in your own life. The questions that you have, you're not actually asking them out loud anymore. You're just holding on to them inside. And you can feel the love for God growing dimmer day by day. Whether it's circumstances or your own questions, you can feel the love for other people getting more reserved and more reserved. And I just wanted to say out the gates, if you can hear Jesus' word today, there is still hope. There is still time. Jesus has made his kingdom on resurrection. He can breathe life. He doesn't snuff out a smoldering wick. He doesn't break just a, a, a reed that's kind of bent over. If you're struggling at this point, you can trust your questions, your heart, and your soul to Jesus this morning. He's not interested in breaking you to break you. He's interested in bringing you into a fullness of life this morning. Jesus uh, begins this passage here walking away from his public ministry. He just dished out in, in chapter 23 his last public sermon, and it is a doozy. If you want to go back and read it this week, please do. But it's just woe after woe after woe to all of these religious leaders. He's got a very strong word for his last sermon. It's a mic drop moment for Jesus. And he's walking away from the temple, and Jesus' heart is heavy. He's not, he's not just upset with religious people. He's brokenhearted because they're choosing a dead way versus the life-giving way that's in front of them. He longs. He says, I long to bring you under my care, but you refuse it. He's not, his feelings aren't hurt. He's devastated that his own kids don't want anything to do with him. So Jesus is heavy-hearted. And he's now turning his gaze towards the cross, and he's going to be marching towards that. He's going to enter into the garden we read last week, and he's going to be sweating drops of blood, and he's going to drink a cup of wrath, and he's going to experience excruciating pain on the cross for our behalf. He's going to become sin. His heart is heavy because those that are closest to him, those that should agree, should fall in line, should follow behind him, should actually be saying yes and amen to him, are saying, no, thank you, I'll pass. His disciples are not just disciples, they're friends. And so when you have a good friend and they see that you're downhearted, they want to cheer you up. Everyone needs a good 
Enneagram 7 in their life. Show you the silver lining of everything. We can turn all kinds of things around. This, this is what the disciples are essentially doing. They can see that Jesus is heavy. And they, they say to him, look at, the, look at this temple. That's something, right? It's like a wonder of the world, Jesus. Check that out. Look at the view, huh? You see the mountains recently? Wow. It's amazing, yeah? This is what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 2. You see all these, right? Truly, I say to you, there will not be here one stone left upon another that won't be thrown down. Whew, okay, thanks, Jesus. We were just trying to help you out, bud, and you're getting more intense, and I don't know what else to say to you right now. It's beautiful, right? Yeah, it's going to burn. It's all going to burn. Nothing's going to be left. Okie dokie. Where do you want to grab dinner, Jesus? Um, This is the stage that Jesus has set for his warning and his explanation and his insight to the end of time. Everyone's impressed with the temple and its appearance on the outside. But guess what Jesus is impressed with? The inside. Or we could say that the inside would actually match the outside. This is what Jesus is after. And this is what Paul warns Timothy about. The end of all things. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. In case you were wondering. It's going to be terrible. Just in case you were like, is this going to be one of those? Yeah, it's one of those messages. It's terrible. It's dark. It's, it's a bad day coming. But it's always darkest right before the dawn. And this is what Paul says of the terribleness that's coming. It's not a dragon coming from the pit of hell to eat our babies. It's actually people, people siding with hell in their everyday life. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. You don't want anything to do with those people, and you don't want to be one of those people. Jesus is telling his disciples, do not spend so much time looking outside for all the signs pointing to something. You spend more time looking inside to make sure your own house is in order. Do not get caught looking like you're close to God without actually being close to him. Verse 3, Jesus said on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately, And he said, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus is in. He's going to tell them. He's giving them things to look for. Pay attention to these things. These are the three things that we can can pull out from here. Beware and watch out for lies becoming truth. Watch out for fear Stealing your focus. Keep your eyes on the lookout because hate is coming and it's going to snuff out life. These are the things 
that you should be looking for. These are the things that you should be checking with your heart. The first thing that he warns us with is lies that look like truth. This verse 4, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Whether it's intentional or unintentional, there are many people who want to give us half-truths, kind of truths, that are actually lies that are going to look and sound good but lead us astray. See that no one leads you astray is actually, it's like a commanding word that means be always on the lookout. That's because these lies are constant and they're subtle. They have a nice filter on them. They sound almost good. The enemy and the culture will constantly try to sneak pills of lies and deception that are wrapped in truth. It's all around us. You can hear it. I mean, you've heard it this week. I know it. Well, live your truth. Just live your truth. No, that's, no, don't do that. Don't live your truth. Because what is truth? It's not so much what, but who. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the truth. Don't live your truth. Live in line with Jesus. This is what we're called to do. It sounds nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just stand on what you believe. Unless what you believe is from the pits of hell. Don't stand on that. Stand with Jesus. Well, love is love. No. Sorry. Loving isn't a feeling. Love isn't an idea. Love is a being. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Love doesn't just live in like romantic movies. Love isn't just a thought. It's not a, like a construct. Love is a being that created all things. This is what love is. This is who love is. A.W. Tozer said, God is not the way we say he is. God is the way the Bible says he is. We weigh all things. We weigh all things with the word of God the Spirit of God, and the people of God. You know, ever seen those, like, nature shows where there's, like, a lion chasing a gazelle, and there's a whole pack of gazelles, and they're all just running like this because they're so freaked out. And then these lions, they're just majestic creatures, and they just know so well what they're doing. And then all of a sudden, this little tiny gazelle just kind of peels off on its own. And it's just like, yeah, I'm going to go this way, and everyone else goes this way. Who does a lion go for? And you're just thinking, oh, no, please cut to a commercial. Oh, no, please stop the YouTube video. Oh, no, it's going to happen. And it totally happens. When we leave the family of God to go out on our own and explore, you bet your bottom dollar that the enemy is no longer prowling like a lion, but he is in full pursuit of you. Come into the fold. Come under the good shepherd. Come under good leadership in your life to help you navigate what looks like truth but isn't. The other thing that Jesus warns us about is fear. Fear is on the rise. And it's actually going to steal our focus. Matthew 24, 6 to 8. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars or floods or rumors of floods. And you see that you are not alarmed when this happens. For this must take place, 
but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and the kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Bad stuff is happening. Bad stuff will continue to happen, and we can get consumed and taken out if all we do is stare and consume that bad news. You don't have to go looking for bad news. You can open your phone right now. And the culture is serving you bad news on a digital silver platter. 95% of all headlines are bad news. And now what we're finding is, surprise, surprise, one in four people that have regular and constant consumption of the news have anxiety issues. I'm not saying bury your head. I'm not saying just, hey, keep whistling a good tune and just pretend like nothing bad's happening. The world's falling apart. Bad stuff is happening out there and in here. I'm not saying that. I'm saying guard your mind against a culture that wants to sow fear and reap a profit from you. Watch what you're watching. Listen to what you're listening to. Fear isn't always a bad thing, actually. Being consumed with it is always a bad thing. That's never going to result in a good thing for you. The way that we fight fear is with two of the things that Jesus says in here. For this must take place. Must is the word that helps our fears. Because it suggests that these events and the fears that get invoked with us are under some divine plan. The word must actually means of God. It speaks to his divine sovereignty. Our kids are singing about it right now. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. This is who God is. This is how we fight our battles with fear. God is sovereign. God has a plan. What the devil meant for bad, God means for good. How? I have no stinking clue. I have no idea. I don't know how he's going to take the mess that you're in and make it beautiful. I have no idea what he's going to do with this mess. I have no idea what he's going to do with the broken pieces. But he is not a liar. He is not a man that would lie. Not a single time has he ever exaggerated to us. The other line that we draw strength on is this. All these are the beginnings of labor pains. Come on. Amen from the moms. Not yet. They are not the end of the world, but they're the beginning of something new being born into the world. When Jesus uses this metaphor, he's actually calling for patience, anticipation, and, and excitement. Two things are guaranteed when labor pains hit. Great pain and great joy. Just on the other side of great disaster is a great renewal. For those in the kingdom, the end is not the end. It's just the beginning. 
Jesus is giving us a heads up. He's giving his disciples a heads up. Every generation that's come since this moment, all of us, he looks us in the eyes and says, this is going to happen. You will experience this pain and suffering is coming for you. This is where he led us last week into the garden. What did he say to his disciples? Watch and pray. Keep your, these things are going to happen, but keep your eyes on me. Do not lose me in the chaos. You keep your eyes fixed on me. These things are going to happen, but pray. Keep communion with me. If your heart is growing cold, I guarantee your prayer life is growing cold. Keep your eyes on me and keep in prayer and communion with me. We give Jesus first place and we attend to our union with him. And we do that by believing what he says. Doing what he says. Matthew 23, 13. There's a reason that many hearts will grow cold. Did you see it? Because lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. In the end, sin is on the rise. And love is on a sharp decline. When it says the love of many, this love that it's speaking of is agape love. Agape love is the love that God has for us. John 3.16, that's agape love. For God so loved you that he sent Jesus. And agape love is what we have back for God. It doesn't exist anywhere else except with our divine creator. This is the highest love. This is it. And this is what's on the decline at the end of all things. When you look around, it looks like love's actually got a pretty good thing going. It's everywhere. We got a holiday devoted to it. It's on all kinds of tumblers and like little water bottles that are walking around here. Love seems to be in good season right now. But it's not this kind of love. It's actually what Paul was telling Timothy. It's love of self that's on the rise. Self-love, it will always allow you to cancel anyone and anything that disagrees with you. Feel like that kind of love is on the rise these days? Selfless love, true love, the love of God, the, the, the life-changing love. What does that call us to do? Bless those who persecute us. Pray for those who disagree with us. Love and move towards, not away from. To keep our hearts from this trap of selfish love and to keep our hearts soft towards Jesus, this is what he's saying. Fight lawlessness in your life. Fight it off. If you want your heart to stay in it to the end, fight lawlessness in your own life. I'm not talking about like running red lights or skipping on taxes, although you should pay attention to those things. But when the Bible talks about lawlessness, when it talks about this, it's mostly referring to God's law. And in God's law, what's the supreme law? There's two things, and we'll talk about it in a couple weeks, actually. This is how we're going to end our time. But to love God and then love others. And Jesus said, 
everything hangs on these two things. Everything's born out of these. That's how God sums up his law. We can't actually live that way if we're living by our own law and standards or borrowing from the culture and saying like, oh, I like a little bit of that. That seems inclusive. Oh, I like a little bit of that. That seems a little bit easier. Oh, I like a little bit of that. It puts me in the driver's seat. Oh, I like a little. It doesn't work like that. You don't get to hodgepodge your own law. What God says goes. This is what Jesus says about it. If you love me, you'll follow my commands. This is what true love is. God's law isn't about not doing bad stuff. It's actually about filling our lives with him and then giving our lives to those in need around us. This is true love. There's no greater love than someone laying down their life for their friends. This is true love. And the longer that we give space to sin in our life, the quicker and easier our voice becomes more important than God's voice. Our opinion becomes more important than God's opinion. And eventually, we will see no need for God's voice to chime in on our business. And then we won't just ignore him. We'll actually start to campaign against him. Oh, the church has got it so backwards. Oh, the, that Bible, you can't trust anything in it. It is the slope that is guaranteed to us. If we do not fight against this in our lives, obeying God's law leads to life. Proverbs 4, 4, take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. This is what God says. Fear will convince us that God actually doesn't have our best interest in mind. Like you, obviously you're sleeping on it, God. Otherwise, none of this bad stuff would be happening in our lives. But this is with us in the central focus. And it's easy to think that. But true love puts God at central focus and says, what could you do with this? Oh, how much glory will you get from this? Oh, how much good will you bring into my life? Because I'm so hard-headed that I won't follow certain things until you just bring them along my path. God is for us. This is true this morning. You lean back into this truth. Sleep on this. God is for us. If we are in Christ Jesus, God is for us. He's working on our behalf this morning. This does not mean we're immune to pain and suffering and things breaking down and going away and it being hard. What it does mean is that we have confidence that he will make it for our good and make it for his glory. This is what we rest in. This is what we bank on. The last warning, and this is where we're going to end this morning, comes in verse 9, and it's hate will eventually begin its campaign to snuff out life. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And this has happened generation after generation. All of the disciples that heard this were martyred. Even the one who wasn't was exiled to an island by himself, which maybe was worse than death. Just alone, hearing report after report of all of his closest friends 
being filleted open, crucified upside down. Paul, Stephen, Peter, James. And we can be tempted to think, well, that was then. And thank goodness we live in the red, white, and blue, and that stuff doesn't, we're civilized people now. There are no crucifixions going on. 900,000 Christians between 2011 and 2020 were murdered for their faith. 90,000 brothers and sisters killed for professing their faith in Jesus every year for the last decade. One every six seconds. History will show us, though, what happens when persecution comes to the church. This only works with God. If you're being a self-martyr for, like, emotional reasons, this isn't going to work for you. But if, if you are a true martyr for the gospel of Jesus, this is what happens. The one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The church grows. The kingdom flourishes with the blood of martyrs. Justin Martyr Fitting last name. He's also known as Justin the Philosopher. He was killed in Rome in 165 AD, and he says this, But the greater the number of persecutions which are inflicted upon us, the greater the number of those who become devout believers through the name of Jesus. Tertullian, persecuted under Rome, a taunting martyr, my kind of martyr. I like this guy. He says to the emperor, Every time you mow us down like grass, we increase in number. The blood of Christ is our seed. We are experiencing our own persecution, our own hardship, our own pushback. Culturally, we're disregarded. We're, we're mocked. We're way outdated. Some of us have lost relationship, close relationship with family members. Some of you have lost jobs because you're a Christian. Some of you have gotten overlooked. Definitely our culture thinks that we're super, like, small-minded, phobic people who are way out of touch with the reality of life. We're experiencing our own pain. We're experiencing our own pushback. But there are others today in this very moment that are experiencing the full weight of persecution. We have to keep our hearts soft to God, and part of how we do this, I believe, is keeping it soft to those in need around us. So this is our response this morning. This is what we're calling for. I don't, I don't want any of us to grow cold inside. This is what troubles me most. With months of terrible news, what keeps me awake is thinking that your heart could grow cold in the midst of those troubles. So what the call is, is to fight sin and unbelief in our own life. This is what we're going to do. We're going to fight lawlessness in our own. We're going to fight the urge to just buck God's system and do what we want to do because, gosh darn it, I want to do it. 
we're going to cut off sin in our life before it chokes out our heart. This is what we're going to do in this family. If you want to make it to the end, we're going to try our hardest in this family to cut off sin, bring things into the light, and live, live. We're also going to pray for those in need. We're going to believe what God says when he says, consider others more important than yourselves. How about that one? Flying in the face of self-care culture. Consider others more important than yourself. This is how we keep our hearts soft. Not by hunkering down and just hoarding away all of our goods and resources. You're guaranteed to get a crusty heart if you keep doing that. We live open, looking, searching for ways to give, searching for ways to bless, searching for ways to extend ourselves. This is why I want to end our time this morning praying for the persecuted church. We're not comparing ourselves, so let's just put that aside. We're not beating ourselves up to make our prayers count more. No, this is what's happening. Christians are actually becoming, very quickly, the most persecuted religious group on planet Earth. This is the reality. It's a very sobering thing to bring this morning. But we're bringing it because... I believe God wants to keep our hearts fully alive. And so I'm going to ask this morning that we, as a family, pray for our bigger family that don't have a a sound system because if they had amplification of the gospel where they were meeting, then they would be arrested. Then they'd be torn away from their families or they would be killed on public display. We're going to pray for those family members this morning. Here's a few ways that we're going to pray. We're going to pray that they would feel the comfort and encouragement of Jesus. Have you felt some of that this morning? Maybe before I was preaching, have you felt some of that comfort this morning from Jesus? Little nearness of God in worship. You've got the little goose pimples or something. You're like, ooh, God's good. Did you feel that this morning at all? Hopefully you did. If you didn't, I'm so sorry. We're going to pray that they feel the presence of God right where they are. They encounter him right in the middle of this. We're going to pray that the church would be strengthened and actually continue to grow in the midst of persecution. We're going to pray for their persecutors, that they would come to know Jesus, that they would repent of their sins, that they would actually be saved because that's what we do in this family. We seek no revenge. We seek the deliverance of those who persecute us. We seek to be like our man on the cross that says, please forgive them because they have no idea what they're doing. And we're going to pray that the gospel would continue to be boldly shared where they're at. So um, I don't know what the best way to like set the mood here is with music, but it doesn't matter. What I'm asking for you this morning is that you would take a knee with me. We're going to actually physically like humble ourselves, and we're going to get on our knees, and we're going to pray for our brothers and sisters together. There's no nice, neat way to do this. 
If you can't, if your knees are bad, your knees are bad. I don't know what to tell you. You ask God, you could lay down if you want. We're gonna put we're gonna force ourselves into a humble posture and begin to pray for those who are being persecuted, whose lives are on the line. So would you join me in that right now?